So if you have your Bible, I hope you brought your copy of God's Word with you today. I'll ask you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 7. Book of Acts, chapter 7. And as you can see, there are indeed 53 verses to work through uh, today. Um, but let's, uh, let's, uh, let's hold our place there for a moment. Um, it is a privilege to be able to meet together and worship. It has already been good to be in God's house, to share the truth of God's word and the gospel, to have fellowship one with another. I am uh, I'm fearful and I'm also excited as well that there is coming a time in this world where the world is going to begin to put even more pressure on the church. If the Lord could leave us for our, in our own plans and in our own devices to grow in our faith, that would be one thing. But because of our struggle with our own human nature, the struggle with the fall, sometimes the Lord applies some pressure to pull us back into obedience with Himself. Now before I begin, I want you to think for a minute. I want you to think for a minute in the history of Piney Grove. Okay, obviously before my time and some here today. I don't want you to think of the history of this local assembly. I want you to think through the history of Piney Grove. You were more than likely closer together in unity when you were working through a tough time when you were not. Think about when the church burnt down and how close-knit you were as a church body. And My prayer is that, that we could find unity and togetherness in life before those things happen, before there is pressure. But I am again afraid that our human nature pulls against the willingness of our spirit and where Jesus said that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak and sometimes in a providential way the Lord does indeed add and apply pressure. So in a way we can see a catalog of the past where God has shown his provision and his provisional hand. We see how God has built his people together historically and to the place where we are today. In today's sermon, Acts chapter 7, we will continue Stephen's saga. This is part 2. And I have subtitled this particular sermon, Catalog, Cataloging the Faithful and the Faithless. Cataloging the Faithful and the Faithless. Last week, we read how Stephen was brought before a council of freedmen and later to be joined by the Sanhedrin. They misrepresented and misinterpreted Stephen's words and bore false witness against him, much like they did at the trial of Jesus himself. They looked upon Stephen's face and they made a note that his face looked like that of an angel. In Luke's notes, he says, his face was like that of an angel, which is a messenger. And that is exactly what we are going to see today in Luke's rendition and his portrayal of Stephen's speech. As a face of an angel, what will the message be? Now, as you're looking through chapter 7, and you are probably making note, 
Larry Stevens, pastor of Piney Grove, is an expository preacher. Is he going to expound on all 53 verses? Don't tell me you didn't think it. We're going to work through 53 verses, but I'll show you how we're going to do this here. Jesus, when he, interp- when he lays out a parable, and sometimes he will interpret that parable, Stephen lays out the narrative, and thank the Lord, Stephen is covering a lot of ground and a lot of history. We're going to let Stephen do that for us today in four major plot movements. There is one verse I do want to stand because I think all of this hinges upon this historical catalog that, that Stephen lays out before this council and, and his brethren who are in earshot. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to read one verse from this discourse. Let's stand together. Acts chapter 7, you'll scan down to verse 51. This is going to be the fulcrum of all these verses coming together. As he addresses his brethren, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Lord, we ask you, As we navigate through your word today, teach us, mold us, shape us. Help us, Father, not to be like those of old that resist and grieve the Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear what you say to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We're going to look at Stephen's uh, sermon in four major points and portions, all of them making this valid point. Throughout all of Israel's history, there have always been, you have always resisted the Holy Spirit. There's been people throughout the catalog of of history who were faithful and those who were faithless. Those who we consider to be pillars of the faith as Weston read from Hebrews 12, that cloud of witnesses. There's always been faithful people, but even along the way there was those who doubted God, who didn't fully trust Him. So the valid point that Stephen will make is that the whole history of Israel, law included, is only fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amen? Is only fulfilled in Christ. And there is a history of faithfulness and faithlessness. So if you're taking notes this morning, these four major plots are this. Number one, we see the promises given to Abraham. These are the promises given to Abraham. We find this reference in chapter 12, verse 1, beginning his ministry, if you will, all the way to chapter 25 and verse 8. This will be the death of Abraham. Now, I'm going to read these first verses for us, these first eight verses together. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Addressing Stephen. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred, go in the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. I can almost see his finger in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it. Not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect. And his offspring would be sojourners or travelers in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. 
But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So that is the first movement, that of Abraham. Now, I want you to notice something. Stephen commences with identifying with them as brothers. I believe his heart's cry is for them to believe in Jesus as Messiah. We, see, we speak the same historical language. We believe in the same God as Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. I believe his burden was for his brothers. The Lord called Abraham somewhere. And he had no idea where he was going, didn't even know where his next step was going to be, for God was going to direct his path. And there's a lesson in there. Stephen is pointing this out. Stephen doesn't give this application because he knows that his audience is well aware of the application that God directed Abraham's path. He directed his, his path. And although they understand this application and truth, they had not considered what we, what we call the Christ factor. Maybe this Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And so Stephen is implying that Yahweh orchestrated every step and every movement of Abraham and he sent him towards a land of promise. He had no inheritance, not even a foot of land to claim, and through it all, the Lord was with him, which is characteristic of the God that we serve, is that God, even all the way back from the beginning, He will never leave you, He will never forsake you. This has been a theme through Scripture since the closing of the canon, since Genesis to the Revelation, that the Lord is with you every, every step. Maybe Stephen is insinuating that the Lord is with him and not so much the others. Is that what Stephen is insinuating? Maybe so. Abraham went through many ups and downs and trials, tribulations. He failed along the way, and yet the Lord still provided. Have you ever asked yourself, Lord, why have you blessed me so in my own sin why have you blessed me, Lord, in my brokenness, my ups and downs, my trials and tribulations, my failures? Lord, why have you allowed me to be in the land of the living? God's character is that he is a loving, long-suffering, long-suffering God. And even through this rejection of the Lord's plan, God was faithful to his covenant, to his people. Stephen is looking at this place, the temple, which worship and acknowledgement of this truth should be preached, and yet it is not. The temple where the council is standing accusing Stephen falsely is a place where worship should occur, where this should be a house of worship. And I got to tell you, over the history of the church, this isn't news to you, but many a dispute has occurred over the years because of misplaced and distorted worship. When you think about what it means to be a disciple and to be, and to be uh, disciplined in the, in the faith, disciplined of the Christian faith, 
what it means to be discipled is a returning back to what it means to be a right worshiper. This is the same place that Jesus said is supposed to be a house of prayer. Now, how does Abraham use this? How does Stephen use Abraham here as a, as a point of reference to the Sanhedrin? The purpose for God moving Abraham from his country was not about the inheritance of land. Okay, it's not about the inheritance of land. It's not about the promise of receiving the land or even the promised land itself. The reason that God moved Abraham out and away and toward a land of promise was about the freedom of true worship. And now the promise given to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. The Joseph is the next point plot in Stephen's speech or his sermon. Secondly, what was meant for evil, God used for good. We find this in the narratives that display Joseph and his life, beginning at chapter 37, chapter 37, verse 1 through chapter 50, and verse 26. Sometimes we hear people misquoting this verse. Romans 8 and 28. This is what that verse says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Sometimes people stop there in their redition. All things work together for good in those that love the Lord. And oftentimes we forget this last portion of Scripture that says, for those who are called according to His purpose. Somehow we miss over the rest of the passages that address the elect and those whom God have predestined. See, the Lord is not obligated to work out anything good for you or me. He does so because He is good. He is not obligated to work out anything good, especially for anyone who is on the path to destruction. People who are unregenerate, who are not saved, who are lost, they don't need for God to make their life better where they are at. They need salvation. They don't need make my life better right where I am at. And so we have to really understand this in the context, what was meant for evil, God used for good. But there is some obedience there's some adherence to the lordship of God. So Stephen interjects this narrative of Joseph, verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him, and he rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. There came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction and our fathers could not find no food. But when Joseph heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all the kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem. 
the land and the, and the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum and silver for the sons of Hamar and in Shechem. The premier theme in Joseph's narrative is God's provision and God's protection. Notice the portions of this narrative where Stephen addresses the brothers as patriarchs. They, of course, are the sons of Jacob, later the sons of Israel. And the implication is this, that God was with Joseph, but not so much with the evil deeds of his brothers. And yet they are still his brothers. Hopefully you are starting to see the connection between Stephen and the council. That they are still brothers in lineage, but they are separated by their theology of who Christ is. There are many in our world today, many who claim the name of Jesus, who even say, I, I know Jesus, but have a distorted view of who he is. So hopefully you begin to see the connection between Stephen and the council. And through Joseph, the Lord brought Egypt out of poverty and out of famine, and Joseph was second in command next to Pharaoh. God had given Joseph favor in the midst of people who oppressed his own people. Within the Joseph narrative, his brothers came to Egypt, as we read in the text, looking for relief, and their brothers, he reveals himself to his brothers as alive and as they had sold him into slavery, and reconciliation is seen. Now, I must say this at the onset, in the middle of this text here, that there is no reconciliation unless Christ is the center. There is no reconciliation without Christ. Now, God delivered Israel ultimately and protected His covenant people. And as the narrative moves into the Exodus narrative, the, the theme of oppression and God's deliverance will be highlighted again. And there's 400 years span, 413 years span between um, the, the, what we consider the, uh, the Exodus or the end of Genesis and beginning of Exodus. And God's people are again in, in slavery. And I believe that a good theme in Joseph's narrative is this. What you meant for evil, God will use for good. And we will see this at the stoning of Stephen. We will see this at the stoning of Stephen. What they meant for evil, God will use for good. Because at the stoning of Stephen, the Christ followers begin to what? Begin to scatter. They begin to take the message of Jesus as Messiah, the persecuted church, out and become the dispersed church. And we see this at the beginning of the letter of James. Now, even back further, before this, the cross of Christ, the cross of the Lord Jesus, that you nailed our Lord Jesus to, you nailed him to a cross that was, as we sang, an emblem of suffering and shame, an emblem of evil. God used it for good by raising the Lord from the dead, and Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. A symbol of evil, a symbol of suffering, a symbol of shame, and God used for good. Then, Act 3, Moses the Deliverer. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased in number. They multiplied until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, and he dealt shrewdly with 
our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up three months in, in, in his father's house and he, had, and he was exposed. Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as his own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptian. He was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, he came into the heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand and that they did not understand and on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and trying to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronged by his neighbor trust, uh, put him aside and said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Did you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Median, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And Moses saw it. He was amazed at the sight. And he drew near to look. There came a voice of the Lord saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And the Lord trembled and did not dare look. Moses trembled and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now I come and I will send you to Egypt. Now how does this relate to the Sanhedrin? How does this relate to the freedman accusing Stephen? Even in the midst of turmoil, God still was multiplying his people. A pharaoh had arose in the ranks and did not know Joseph or the promise given to his family or the patriarchs. Stephen's retelling the history of Moses and the, and the adversity that his people faced. Every male child at the time faced death unless God would intervene, and God did intervene. Through this difficult time of persecution, Moses was born and protected by the Lord. He was introduced into the home of Pharaoh and God began to use Moses' surroundings to prepare him for what was ahead. As it says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptian and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So he continues to stress the protection that God brings. As recorded and retold, Stephen one day Moses came upon one of the Hebrews and a taskmaster arguing. And remember, Stephen is highlighting the fallen factor of the heroes of the faith. That there is a faithful and there is a faithless. And there is a tradition of people being hard-hearted and stubborn and stiff-necked. Making a point. People are slow to learn. People are stubborn. Israel in its history were recalcitrant. Their heart was hardened. Moses, kindred, responds to him in more or less words, you, are you going to kill us as well? Like you did the Egyptian who you buried in the sand. And so they didn't see Moses as a deliverer. Stephen spread Moses' narrative over 120 years, 40 years living in the comfort of Pharaoh's court, 40 years in Midian, 
Then 40 years from the burning bush through the wilderness wandering, which we'll see in closing. The Lord used Moses as a deliverer, but his, by his own people on the onset rejected. They said, who made you ruler and guide? And this becomes kind of a, sub, a subtext to the wilderness wanderings. Who made you ruler and guide? So this is again Stephen demonstrating humanity's overall rejection of the things of God throughout history. The Sanhedrin are just as guilty. Which leads to the last portion of Stephen's sermon. This is the turning away. We would also call this apostasy, a turning away. So let's read these verses in closing. This Moses whom you rejected. So he's talking to the Sanhedrin, ultimately. This Moses whom you rejected, saying, Who have made you ruler and judge? This man God sent both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And this man led him out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers who we know as Christ. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received life oracles to give to you the Ten Commandments. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their heart they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us a God who, we, who will go before us and for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Rejection. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands that God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven and is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during the 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch, the star of the god Rephaim, the images that you made to worship and I will send you into exile Beyond Babylon, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. So in all of this, Christ has been in all of this. The triune God has been all in all of this. Our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was into the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the high, the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. And the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the, what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? In these verses, Stephen is stressing the falling away of the people of history. And this falling away is a constant motion, not only in Israel's history, but in humankind history as well. If you were honest, you would have to say, even in your life, there are moments when you are close to God, and there are moments when you're far from Him. There are moments when you're closer to God 
And there are moments when you feel far away from him. We have some of that back and forth motion in our lives as followers of Jesus. Back and, and forth. Not that we fall out of salvation. That will not happen. But close to God and far from him on occasion. And the beauty of this, again, in his speech, the subtext here, the beauty of all of this, the beauty of being made alive and in Jesus is this. We will not always stray so far away where the Lord will not bring us back. Amen. And you might be here this morning and you might have felt as if you're on that road straying away. We don't stray so far if we are in Him where the Lord does not call us back and woo us back to Himself in right relationship. Stephen reminds those that he is, addressed, he is addressing of the historicity of their rejection. There is a history, the fallen nature, to reject. They rejected Moses as they asked, Who made you judge? And man, do we ever get that one right today? That seems to be the current, uh, the current in our culture today. Who made you my judge? Who are you to judge? That seems to be engrafted in the spirit of the age in which we live, even in the life of the church. Now, to the hearers, Stephen is implying of himself and others in history that you may have rejected the messenger, but God has not. For God has sent both ruler and redeemer. Moses is a foreshadowing, a type of Messiah, a type of Christ or deliverer. And God used Moses to display signs and wonders pointing to the one true God, Jesus pointing to his Father. So did the apostles pointing to Jesus, and so did Stephen. So he's grinding the point. He's sticking the finger in the wound, so to speak, which demonstrates their hardness of heart. God has brought his people from Egypt in a, in a matter of days, and they were, in a matter of days, they were turning their back away from the one true God and looking back to Egypt, they even erected a golden calf. Forty days Moses was up on the hill, Mount Sinai, and in 40 days they had already turned their eyes back towards Egypt. They looked upon the false god Moloch not many days into the future, and they even offered up children to this idol. Up and down, in and out, Israel was back and forth from God, and they were close to him and far from him. And by God's providence in history, we see Joshua. Through Joshua, the people found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And through this far and close dynamic that weaves through history, we find ourselves with Solomon, who will eventually build a temple, this house of worship. And even though these people are standing on a rendition of the temple, it was not Solomon's temple in all of its glory, but it represented a house of worship. Solomon built this temple to the Lord, a house of worship, and yet it says the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. In case we have not recognized this church house is not where God lives. We say it's a house of the Lord, saying it's a house of worship where we come to meet. But God is not contained in buildings made by hands with brick and mortar. Now, this, scanning the synopsis of Israel's history, Stephen comes down onto this point, which I made earlier. 
You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you'll always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whom you now have betrayed and have murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And I believe in this particular speech, sermon, if there ever was a mic drop in the book of Acts, this would probably be it. This is where we might be inclined to say, how dare they, these freedmen, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and Pharisees, how dare they? Or we might even be inclined to say, what were they thinking? And it has escaped our mind to think, well, maybe that we have been just as bad. Stephen had just spent an extensive amount of time speaking to his brothers, pleading with them. The very first thing he says to them, brothers, I genuinely see him wanting them to repent and turn to Jesus as Messiah. It is burning within him. Here was a man that is described as being moved by the Holy Spirit, and he said, he said what he said as he was led to say it by the Holy Spirit of God. And I asked you this question last week. Can we identify? We need some men and some women who will be willing to be moved by the Holy Spirit of God who will say what they need to say. So here's the question. Can we identify with Stephen? The answer is yes. Do you know that we live amongst people? Do you know that we are surrounded by people who do not believe in the power of the gospel and who do not believe in the power of God to save? Worse yet, we live amongst people, even in our churches, who do not care what people believe as long as they use the name of Jesus or God in their conversation. I am convinced many cannot tell you what it truly means to be saved. They can't tell you what it means to be saved and can't even look back in their life and say, I remember, I remember when I repented. We sing that song, and I repented of my sins and won the victory. Folks can't tell you what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. We are surrounded by people who hold a false idea that good works is what is going to save them. Churches across the world, I want you to listen to this. Churches across the world who are teaching and who are preaching orthodox foundational truths that it is only Jesus who saved, they are declining and they are plateauing because people want a babysitting service for their kids. They want their ears to be tickled. They don't want you to meddle in their spiritual affairs, which I might add is as cold as Frosty's nose on a January night in the Arctic. I am convinced that we just do not care for our brothers and sisters. 
We get in our little bubble, we marinate there, hoping that will all work itself out. We know this person's going through a real battle with this sin, and, and we just pray that it's going to work out. God will work it out, and yes, the Lord will work out things for His glory, but that also means that we must function and move in the kingdom of God. We must get out and get up and get out. And so, this all comes together. We've worked through Stephen's history lesson. Do you care about the wayward, the stiff-necked, the stubborn, the lost? Do you care for the disenchanted church member? What are we going to do about it? We talk a lot about missions, and that's important. We are a missional church. I'm glad of that. We talk a lot about mission. That's important. But how about the mission to the wayward, the mission to the stiff neck, the mission to the stubborn, the mission to the, st- the, the self-righteous? Is the gospel powerful enough to save? Now, here's the point of Stephen's speech. It cuts like a knife with conviction. And I'm going to close on this. I hope this is not you, and I pray it's not me. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.